And so there are things that we can learn about our calling by looking at Jeremiah's calling. We'll look at three things this morning that help us in our calling. First, we need to learn one thing that we need to do in our calling. Second, we'll see two things that will hold you back in this calling. And third, two things that you need to rely on with this calling. I initially planned on three things at the end, which would have been really cool. One, two, three. I'll keep you here too long, and we have picnic break waiting for us. So one thing you need to do, two things that will hold you back, and two things that you need to rely on. First, what is it that we need to do? I've already given it away. We are called to speak the word of God to the people around us. But why? Because this is how God shapes history. It's his chosen vehicle to bring the change that he thinks this world needs. Verse 7, he tells Jeremiah to go to who I send you and to say whatever I command you. Why? Verse 10, because I've set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. See, God is out to make a difference in this world. It's a difference that he saw the need for long before Jeremiah was ever thought of by his mother or father. And so God is not surprised that our world needs an intervention. He wasn't up in heaven wringing his hands hundreds of years ago saying, oh man, Israel has abandoned me. What are we going to do now? All my plans are ruined. He didn't say that. He saw the need coming. And he responded to this future need by thinking up Jeremiah, conceiving of Jeremiah in his mind because he planned to change the world. God doesn't simply see the future. He affects the future. He acts to alter the future. And he does that to bring it to where he wants this world to be. He intended to do that through Jeremiah. But God didn't come to him then and hand him a sword. Didn't tell him, okay, here's where you can go find a ready-made army. Instead, he sends him out seemingly empty-handed on his own, armed with nothing but the word of God. Now, why does he do that? Because it's through his word that God is going to set in motion events that will what? That will eventually fully free this world from darkness. It's through his words that he sets in motion those things that will pluck up nations and kingdoms. You realize pluck up is what? It's an agricultural metaphor. He's going to weed the nations. He's going to get rid of what's not supposed to be growing there. And he's going to break down. That's an architectural metaphor. He's going to demolish things that humanity has built that they shouldn't have. You realize that's what you need to do with a field that's not producing or with a building that's dangerous. You have to remove what's wrong so that you can replace it with what's right. And that's God's ultimate intention, to grow and build what is good. So he starts clearing things away, removing what's wrong by the word he gives Jeremiah to speak. And if you read the book of Jeremiah, you realize this, this is a book that is full of the judgment of God, words of judgment that later came true. But you have to keep this again in the right context. God has this longer view in mind he doesn't remove things because he enjoys plucking up and tearing down. This is not judgment for judgment's sake, removal for removal's sake. But it's because he has a positive project in mind. So that in place of what should not be there, he's going to build architecture again. He's going to plant more agriculture. 
so that what is now among the nations is good. And he intends to do this work not by some divine overwhelming power that obliterates what he hates, but he intends to do this by his word, his word that sets people in motion, people who then do what he desires, that bring about his desires for the good of the rest of the world. And so he doesn't come to Jeremiah and say, hey, I want you to go out and assess what you think is broken or misshapen about this world. When you've done assessing that, generate your own thoughts as to what you think needs to happen here. And then when you're done that, rally people around you. Convince them that you're right. Use your words to persuade and motivate them. And then get them working towards social transformation. God doesn't say that. Instead, he gives Jeremiah his words. He gives his perspective on what's wrong, his judgments. He gives his invitations to people to please hear him, to work with him, not against him. And Jeremiah's job in all of this then is to receive God's viewpoint, God's narrative, and then faithfully represent that narrative to the people around him. Now he does this by using specific words that are his own, words that were formed, informed by his experiences growing up in the culture that he did. And so he speaks ancient Hebrew, not modern English. He uses illustration from, illustrations from his time period, not our own. But the essence of the message, that larger narrative, comes from the Lord. Because it's only the Lord who has this eternal viewpoint, who can accurately then assess where humanity needs to go and how we need to go about getting there. And again, this is just one of those things that, that crushes our modern pride. The pride of our age that says our words are good enough. Our thoughts about what is just and fair are good enough. We don't need to hear the word of the Lord. We're pretty smart. We can study the world around us. History, philosophy, science, medicine, government. We can study this world and then we can make accurate assessments of what's wrong with this world, of what's wrong with people. And then we can come up with ideas about where we need to go because our ideas are good enough. And we're offended when God suggests actually no. <laughs> They're not good enough. You can't understand an individual human being without my insight. You can't conceive yourself. You didn't conceive yourself. And therefore, you can't even know basic things about yourself, about your identity, without my thoughts about who you are. Can't do that on an individual level. Certainly can't do that with larger groupings, communities, societies, the human race as a whole. And that's just not what we moderns want to hear. If you read Jeremiah's book, you realize that the people of his day didn't want to hear it either, just like they didn't want to hear any of the prophets. And yet we ignore God's word at our risk because it is the way that he shapes the outcome of this world. Just study history. Study what happened after Jeremiah spoke. Go to any of the exiles of that day that you would find living in Babylon, people who had come from Jerusalem. They may not have wanted to hear what God said to Jeremiah beforehand when they were living in Jerusalem. 
number of them made that very clear, that they did not think that what Jeremiah said was the word of God to them. They thought, that's just your own ideas. That's not really God's word to us. But later, when everything that Jeremiah prophesied had come true, when there was just a small remnant of Israelites left who had survived God's judgment, who had been forcibly taken away from their home and were now in Babylon, you can imagine them reading through Jeremiah's book after everything he had said had been written down, and you can imagine them after the fact saying, yeah, we were wrong. That was the word of the Lord to us. It's exactly what happened to us, just like God said it would through Jeremiah. Why is that? Because God rules his world and he advances his plans through what he says. It's still how he operates today. So when God tells us now, in a passage like 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, to take every thought captive to obey Christ, what God is saying to you and me is, speak up. Take my words into this world, this world of arguments, this world of thoughts, this world of ideas. Take my words into this world because that's still how I move my kingdom forward. And so as his people, we're to take his narrative, his perspective on this world and use it then to frame how we think about the present world and how we talk about the present world. And so we're to analyze and assess what are the anti-God elements in our world and then we are to challenge them, to uproot, to break down the things that oppose him. Then we're to propose God's ways of thinking about life, how to live it, to build and plant a better world, a world that would more accurately represent him. And that calling to speak his words on his behalf to this larger world is not just for a few specially gifted prophetic types like Jeremiah. Instead, that's now God's expectation of all of his followers because it's by his word, known and then spoken by his people, that he has plans for this world to reshape this world. That's point one. One thing you need to do as his follower, you need to speak his word. Point two, here's two things that will hold you back from doing that. First, it's our fear of being incompetent. Verse 6, Jeremiah has just heard how God has been thinking about him from before he existed, of how God sovereignly thought to himself, Jeremiah is the perfect way to bring about my plans and purposes to free my people from darkness. I will form and appoint Jeremiah. Jeremiah has heard all of that, and he replies, verse 6, Ah, sovereign, ah, ah Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I'm only a youth. I'm too young, God. I'm too inexperienced. The job is way too big. It needs someone who's better qualified. God says to him, here's what I want to do. Jeremiah says, here's why it won't work. You ever feel that way? You relate to that? God puts you in a classroom that's just jam-packed with ways of thinking that have nothing to do with him, and you feel unprepared to deal with any of it from the moment that you step in the room. Or he sends you to watch your kid's soccer game along with the rest of the parents, and they're talking about things that you know aren't right, 
but you don't say a lot because you have no idea what to say or, or how to even try to bring God's perspective into any of it. Or your kids come home from school or they watch TV or they watch an online video and you see the impact on them of living in this world, of being bombarded by things that are far beyond their ability to grasp. You can see that it's already eroding their confidence in Christ, but you know that you don't know where to begin to help them. And what do you feel like in each of those circumstances? You feel like a kid, right? <laughs> like you're only a youth, someone who's too immature. That you are going up against thoughts and ideas that are so far beyond you. You can't imagine engaging them. can't imagine bringing God's perspective to them. And you think to yourself, I'm way too young. My thinking is way too young to risk saying anything. I'm going to get crushed. I'll be made fun of. Things that are important to me will be ridiculed. God and his people will look stupid. I'm better off just saying nothing. Which then helps you understand, here's the second thing that will hold you back from God's calling to speak. It's not incompetence, it's fear. It's not only that you look at yourself and you think, man, I'm way too small. It's that you look around at those you're supposed to go to and you think, man, they are way too big. Jeremiah knew what that felt like. God knows it. He said to Jeremiah, verse 8, do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you. Why does he say do not be afraid of them? <laughs> it's because there's something very real to be afraid of. Jeremiah knows it, God knows it. That after the Garden of Eden, humanity has not welcomed God's voice. That's part of what it means to share in the fallenness of our race. It's that we come into this world primed to reject what God has to say to us. That's as true now as it was back in Jeremiah's day. Just try to bring into the public sphere God's ideas on sexuality or his ideas on marriage. Or his ideas on economic justice, on political justice, or on your responsibility to those who have not been as privileged as you've been, or bring into the public sphere the issue that I brought up earlier, on when a certain group of cells with DNA that's different from your own become a person, and what your obligations are then to that different DNA, both before and after they're born. Or... Think about what God's obligations are on you to care for those who are car carrying their child or for those who have chosen not to carry their child. Bring into the public sphere God's thoughts on what your obligations are to someone who's born not into your family, but who's been born into someone else's family. That not only do you have obligations to your own children, but that you have obligations to other children, other God-conceived human beings. God has ideas on all of that. Ideas that will alter and change your life. Ideas that will limit what you otherwise might do. That will change how you might live. You can see this really clearly in the early church. It was common in their day to abandon unwanted babies in the Greco-Roman world. Leave them exposed to the elements or throw them out on trash heaps. 
And Christians stood out in that world for two reasons. One, because they did not follow the values of their day. They did not abandon their own children. But they also, secondly, took responsibility for those who had been abandoned. Been reading about a woman named Macrina. She lived in the fourth century. She was the older sister of Basil the Great and Gregory of Nyssa, both of whom served as bishops. They had a huge impact on the early church. But even though she was less well-known, Macrina had a huge influence on her brothers, both in her love for Scripture and in how she taught them what it meant to live out their faith, especially by caring for those who were disadvantaged. One of the things that she's known for is that she would go out and gather babies who had been thrown away. She was a single woman. She would bring them home to raise them as her own. She didn't simply content herself with saying that killing babies was wrong, but she acted at her own expense, limited her own life, used her own resources to care for others. Because she saw in her faith that she was responsible for others, for any other who is made in God's image. Now, who wants to hear all of that? The totality of God's ideas on how we are to spend our lives, on how we're to spend our time, how we're to spend our money. The totality of his ideas ought to convict all of us. That convicts me. And our world does not like being convicted. So set yourself to bring the totality of the word of God to this sin-darkened planet, and you will run into opposition. Opposition that's smarter than you? Yes but also that's more aggressive. Opposition that'll challenge you. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 9, gives you a taste of what that opposition will be like. God says there that people who don't want to hear from him are, quote, rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. They say to the seers, see no more visions. And to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. Leave this way. Get off this path and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. That's what you can expect if you follow Christ and if you bring his words to bear on this earth. Intense opposition that tries to silence you. It's not surprising that Jeremiah would hear his future from God, look at himself, look at the world around him, and feel both incompetent and afraid. He saw how big the obstacles really were. And he was tempted to shrink back. But that's because he didn't see enough. He needed to see not just point two, that there are reasons that will hold you back, but point three, that there are things he needed to rely on, things that he could rely on to carry out his calling. We'll look at two of them this morning. First, he could rely on God's presence being with him as he carried out his calling. Verse 8, God says, Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. God tells Jeremiah that he can be certain that Jeremiah will carry out his calling. Why? Because God will be with him and will deliver him. Now, you have to be really careful how you hear that. Because God is not promising that Jeremiah's life is going to be easy. 
that Jeremiah won't suffer. Jeremiah actually really did suffer horribly. He was more than just ridiculed. He was beaten, put in stocks, imprisoned. At one point, he was essentially thrown into a pit and left to die. God did not promise to give him an easy life. You see that with other people who spoke God's word into this world. Jesus is the model for all of his people. Persecuted for the message that he brought, arrested, beaten, whipped, imprisoned, killed. And you read the lives of his disciples and you realize they walked down exactly the same road. The apostles were regularly hauled off, hauled before the authorities because of the message they proclaimed. They had to run for their lives from their homes. They also were beaten, flogged and imprisoned. Most all of them were martyred. All of which was the regular experience of the early church in general. It's an experience that still takes place around the globe. God's presence does not mean you won't suffer. If you follow him and speak his words to this world, you can count on suffering. It's guaranteed to you. So what then does it mean that he's with you to deliver you? It means that he will guard your life until you've completed the calling that he formed you to have before you were born. Philip Ryken, in his commentary on Jeremiah, wrote, writes about an evangelist who God used to re bring renewal to uh, the Colombian church during the 1980s and 90s. Ryken writes, quote, Since this man was an enemy of the drug cartels, his life was in constant danger until he was finally gunned down by assassins. Yet shortly before he died, he said, I know that I am absolutely immortal until I have finished the work that God intends for me to do. Let me say that again. I know that I am absolutely immortal until I have finished the work that God intends for me to do. That's what it means to know that God will deliver you if you're a follower of his. He calls you to take his word into places where it will not always be accepted, and his promise is not that everything will go just fine. His promise is that he will deliver you, that he will absolutely preserve your life, that it is impossible for you to die until you've finished everything that he's given you to do. So if you live your life controlled by fear, fear of death, fear of accidents, fear of disease, you've forgotten why you're here. That you are here because God has appointed you, given you a calling to carry out that you did not give to yourself. You've forgotten that, and you've forgotten that he promises to deliver you, to guarantee your life until you finish what he's called you to do. His promise to deliver you is the first thing that you need to rely on if you're going to carry out his calling. Second thing you need to rely on, you need to have his word inside of you. Verse 9, then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I've put my words in your mouth. If you're going to carry out his calling to speak his words, his words have to be inside of you. At which point some of us might think, okay, whew, here's the loophole. God hasn't touched my mouth. The word of God hasn't come to me. It's actually not true. In fact, you have the word of God much more than Jeremiah did much more than the people of Jeremiah's day did. See, Jeremiah had to wait for God to speak to him. 
the Israelites had to be relatively close to Jeremiah when he was speaking in order to hear from God. Or they had to go to a special place, not a lot of Bibles. They had to go to a temple or synagogue that housed a rare copy of the Word of God. What do you have to do? You have to pick up your phone. Most of us have Scripture there. It's all right there. There's no waiting. There's no intermediary. The challenge for you is not that you don't have the Word of God. The challenge is making the time to hear it, making the time to take it in, making the time to think about it, to study it, to accept it, to absorb it. It's not hard now to have the Word of God. It's hard to soak it in. And yet that's what you and I need. You have to have God's Word inside of you before you can speak it outside. You have to adopt God's viewpoint on life to such an extent that it then does what? It shapes your own viewpoint. Because if you don't, you won't be able to approach the world with God's plans and with his purposes in mind. There's a time when Jesus was approached by a group of people. They, they thought they had a great gotcha question for him. And it was a way of proving that their philosophical take on life was right. And Jesus turned around to them, Mark 12, 24, and he says, Are you not in error? Because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. He says to them, you're in error. You're wrong. Your question is wrong. Your conclusion is wrong because you didn't start with scripture and work from scripture to life. Instead, you've started first with your beliefs about life and then you went on from there. But when you do that, you end up with ideas. You end up with practices that have no basis in the world that God's made. Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? Brothers and sisters, you and I have to have the scripture inside of us. Or we will live in error. We have to drink it in. It has to be a regular part of each of our days. It has to be a regular part of our life together. That's why I'm very excited about what the women's ministry is doing. They have placed Scripture at the heart of how they are launching women's ministry here at Renewal. That was the focus of their summer gatherings. It's the very next initiative that they're taking now. They're restarting their women's Bible study next Sunday after church, and they're going to work through First and Second Peter. So ladies, let me speak to you just for a moment. I want to appeal to you. You need this. You need to study scripture personally, and you need to study it with your sisters. So if there is any way possible for you to join in after church next week, I'm urging you, please do that. Make the time to do that. Make it a priority for yourself. You know, some of you have kids. You need to get home. You need to feed the kids. Ask your husband if he'll do that. Ask him to take over for a couple hours to come in a separate car. If he gives you any grief, ask him to talk to me. Because this is not a fun time for you to just hang out so that you can get away from it all at home. This is an equipping time for you personally. An equipping time that will then impact your home because it will impact how you live and it will impact how you live with your family. That's something that your husband should be thrilled to invest in. And it's something that you should be thrilled to make time for. I also want to appeal to parents here. Because the same thing that you need, the Word of God inside of you, is the same thing that your children need. 
What can you possibly give them to help them deal with an antagonistic world if you won't give them the scripture? You need to do this at an early age. Sally and I struggled with devotions and trying to help our kids learn things. This is actually one of the places where I think we did okay. When our kids were young, we would read Bible story books to them. Bible story books that were designed for kids. That was good, but the messages were often Americanized. Messages tended to sound a little bit like, do the right thing, be good like Noah, be brave like David, pray a little bit, and then God will make everything work out okay. That is not the story of the Bible. And so we regularly had to reframe the books with our kids to recapture the story that God tells. Thankfully, since that time, just a couple of years, there are a lot of books now dedicated to retelling God's story to kids in a way that is true to Scripture, as well in ways that are engaging. I want to suggest several that I think are worthwhile. In True Confession, these are books that I read now, personally, not because I want to be able to recommend something that's good, but because I find them helpful. See, when you are trying to present Scripture clearly to a kid, you have to cut a lot of things out. You have to focus and hone in on what's essential. And I need to have that reminder. They're also really helpful when I'm fried. <laughs> and my, I just have no more gas in the tank. And so I can start to read through these and be edified because they're pointing me back to Christ and they're reminding me, here's the big picture. So for very young kids... Sally Lloyd-Jones, the Jesus Storybook Bible, it's a must-read. You might use your phone, take pictures if you want. I'd hope that every family has a copy of this, that you read through it with your kids. Subtitle says it all. Every story whispers his name because she points to Jesus throughout the book. Second book, also for young kids, Nancy Guthrie uses the theme of shadow to track how all of Scripture talks about Jesus in a book called I See Jesus. It's a lot shorter than Lloyd-Jones. But Guthrie goes through a number of Old Testament passages, and she points out where you see the shadow of Jesus in each of those passages, and then she shows you, here's how that shadow comes to life in Christ. Similar kind of way, in The Promise, Jason Halopoulos tells the story of God coming to rescue us from darkness by promising us a deliverer. And then Halopolis goes through all of the Old Testament heroes in order to show that none of them were good enough to be that deliverer. But how Jesus is. That Jesus is the perfect righteous man, the perfect prophet, the perfect judge, the perfect king, etc. It's a really good book. Covers scripture in a really short amount of time. Love the pictures as well in this one. If your kids are a little bit older, there's Kate Hawks's book, Who is Jesus? It's a collection of 40 pictures from Scripture, how these pictures tell us more about Christ. Each chapter is very short, about three pages long, but I think relatively full. At the end of each of these 40 chapters, there's several reflection questions, uh, several Bible references that you can look at with your kids. There's an answer key and an appendix so that you know how to answer the questions. There's song suggestions if you're interested. I think this might work well as sort of like an after-dinner devotional. Maybe just one more suggestion. Kevin DeYoung has compiled the biggest story, Bible storybook. I would think elementary age here, maybe a little younger. 104 very short chapters, lots of pictures that unpack God's one main story as he works his way throughout the Old and New Testaments. I can cover that now. Parents, 
Your kids need scripture. You live in a time and in a country that just has an embarrassment of resources. Please don't punt just because your parents didn't teach you the scripture. Or please don't excuse yourself by saying, I'm too busy, there's just no time. If you're too busy to help your kids understand God and what he has to say, then I'm going to be very blunt. You're too busy. If you're too busy to help your kids understand God, you're just too busy. It should not surprise you then if you're too busy when later they have no knowledge of him. The church is here to help, but God's primary call to speak his words into your child's life, that primary call is to you. If the word of God does not come, does not help form your children, if they don't look out on the world through his framework, through his narrative, then something else will form them. And something else will form that lens through which they look to make sense out of life. And that's true of all of us. If you don't know the big picture of what God says and how the different pieces fit into that larger picture, you're not going to be prepared for his call to speak his word to those around you so that his plans are then carried out in this world. And if that doesn't move you this morning, if you go, okay, but that's nice. I really don't have a lot of interest in the word of God. If you're like the people that Jeremiah spent his life speaking to, then it may be because you haven't yet experienced Christ in you. God told people in Jeremiah 31, 33, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. What does that mean? It means he understood that his words would just keep bouncing off of people if all they're doing is hearing it with their ears. That what his people needed was his law, his word written on their hearts, that it had to be first inside of them before it was something that they wanted more of. And that's why Jeremiah was different. He would say later to God in chapter 15, verse 16, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy, the delight of my heart. He wanted more of what? Of what he already had. Of what God had already done by touching his mouth. The people that he spoke to didn't want that because it wasn't inside of them. And that's why Jesus came. Because he knew that unless he, the word of God himself, was inside of us, we would never want to hear from God. And he didn't want that tragedy for you and me. And so he came to die. He came to die to take away our sin of rejecting God's voice, to cleanse our hearts from rejecting him. But he didn't stay dead. Rose again, lives again, and by his spirit, he lives inside of his people now that there's a clean place for him to live. So if you don't find yourself wanting to hear more from him, it may be that you don't have him in you. Or it could be that you've been listening more to the world around you. You've forgotten what it's like to listen to him, to have his words be your joy and to be your delight. In either case, the solution is the same. Go to him. Take words to him. Talk to him. Ask him to cleanse you so that you long to hear him talking to you. Lord Jesus, thank you that you did not stay in heaven shouting the words of God to us. Thank you that you came 
the word of God, that you were made flesh so that you could die, so that you could now cleanse us and be inside of us. Lord, I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters that we would have a passion that we just couldn't get enough of hearing you, that we would long for that more and more than we already do. Lord, I pray that you would make that more than simply a responsibility for us to check off, but that it would be something that goes deep inside of us and transforms who we are as people as it transforms how we understand you, how we understand this world, how we understand ourselves. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.